Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Good to see you this morning. My name is Josh. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's just good to be with you. We are in a series uh, working through the New Testament book of Acts. And you might be looking at that slide going, but that says Romans too. Well, there's good reason for that. And so I'm going to pray and then I'll tell you why. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thanks for your grace to us and your goodness. Um, Father, we don't deserve any of your grace. Uh, we, as we'll see in the text, even this morning, Lord, we, uh, we all turn from you at different times and uh, we, we suppress what's true. Uh, but Holy Spirit, thank, thanks be uh, to God for Jesus and the fact that he's rescued us and redeemed us and gives us his righteousness. So Holy Spirit, would you help me as I teach your word, the things you've written for us, um, Help me to teach well, help all of us to understand and be changed in whatever ways we need to be. And uh, do your work today, I pray. And uh, Father, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you got your Bible, last week we were in Acts chapter 20. You can uh, turn there with me now. Acts chapter 20. And Acts chapter 20, starting in verse one, uh, we read this. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. That kind of begs the question, where's Paul at if he's departing somewhere? And uh, Paul, this guy, he was uh, all about planting churches, spreading the gospel. He's on his, in this text, he's at the end of his third time out, like going out into modern day Turkey and Greece and planting churches. And he's in the city of Ephesus, which is on the far west coast of what is today Turkey. And uh, he's getting ready to leave. And it says, after the uproar ceased, you can read about that uproar in Acts 19. Uh, just some crazy things happened opposing the gospel there. Um, God spared Paul in all that. But then Paul sent for everyone there, all the believers, and he encouraged them. And he said goodbye for the last time. And he left for Macedonia. And when he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, specifically Corinth. And there he spent three months. So let me show you this on a map because this kind of sets up where we're headed today. Paul was in Ephesus and he, he took off. He said goodbye to all of them after the, the uproar there. And then uh, he left after three years in Ephesus, makes his way back through some of the churches he had helped start in Philippi and Thessalonica, and then down in uh, to Athens and Corinth in uh, Greece. And in Corinth, he stays there for three months based on a letter that Paul wrote to the church there from Ephesus, it's likely he was there in the winter and he spent the winter in Corinth. 
Now, while he's there, though, do you know what one of the things he does? He writes a letter to the church in Rome. So he stays in Corinth for about three months. And last week we talked about how he came back from Corinth and made his way back to Jerusalem. But let's rewind a little bit. While he's in Corinth for those three months, he writes a letter to the book or to the church of Rome that you and I know and have in the New Testament called the New Testament book of Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, Paul's writing this. And, and what I want you to see, we're gonna start reading. There's not gonna be a lot of text on the screen this morning. So if you've got a Bible, uh, open up to, ch- to Romans with me. If you've got an app on your phone, you can do that. If you need a Bible, uh, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, you can grab. But if you just wanna listen, that's okay too. Cause you know, when these letters were written, Paul wrote this to Rome. And it wasn't like the, the man or woman who got up to read it to everybody said, okay, get out your copy of Paul's letter. They just got up and read it. And everybody listened to hear what this guy Paul had to say to them. So uh, Romans chapter one, and uh, before I even start reading, we're gonna read pretty much the whole first chapter of Romans together. But I want you to see that Romans is a book on what to believe and how to behave. So with that in mind, let's let's, uh, look at the beginning of Romans chapter one. It starts off kind of like a normal letter in that day. Like if you and I wrote a letter, you might write, dear so-and-so, right? Kind of that's the template of a letter today. A template of a letter in Paul's day in the New Testament times in antiquity was first you introduced yourself. So that's what he does. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and, and tells a little bit of, about himself, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, most of the letters Paul writes, he writes to places he's already been. This letter he writes before he ever goes. And so he's introducing himself. He said, I'm set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, talking about Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. There's kind of how to bathe for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then he lists who he's writing to. Verse seven, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now this could be, this is a letter specifically to the church in Rome, but you know, it's been preserved by God also to us. So there's instruction here from Paul for you and me grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, Paul sends this to them before he ever goes. And uh, Paul's desire was eventually to make it to Rome. But if you go back and look in Acts 19 and 20, I think it's at the end of chapter 20, uh, Paul basically says, hey, the spirits revealed to me that everywhere I go, imprisonment and affliction await me. And so I desire, I, I gotta go see Rome, he says, but um, I recognize that these things await me. And I kind of wonder, this is just Josh speculating, like did, did Paul even question in his mind, am I really gonna make it to Rome? Like, I hope God gets me there. But if not, I, I better write to him. And I wanna make sure they hear everything that I need to tell them. Because Rome is this major city in that area. It's, it's, it's the capital of the Roman empire. 
and, and everything flows from Rome to everywhere else. And so Paul sends this letter and this letter, I mentioned it kind of starts like a normal letter, but there's other parts of it we're not going to get into, but it, it doesn't follow all the normal conventions of a letter. There's not as much personal stuff in it as many of the other books. And so some have argued, and I think you can make this argument, Paul wrote all kinds of letters, but he only wrote one book. And that book is Romans. Because he tells them what to believe, he, he teaches doctrine, and then he spends the last few chapters saying how to behave in light of that. And uh, so let's just start, start reading uh, some more here in verse eight. First of all, Paul writes, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your, for, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul's never met him. Well, he knows a few of them. He knows Priscilla and Aquila who had come from Rome and maybe they're the ones even that carried this letter back to Rome or read it to everyone. Um, but he thanks because he keeps hearing about what's happening in the church in Rome, even though he's never been there. Good things that are spreading out from Rome throughout the Roman empire. For God is my witness, he says in verse nine, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Imagine you're part of the church in Rome and you're hearing this read to you. You've heard of this guy named Paul and now, whoa, he's written to us. What's he saying? He's like, I pray for you all the time. I love you. I think about you. I hear good things about you. I ask that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul, Paul really wanted to get there and to see them. But you know, he never gets there until the very end of Acts chapter 28 in verse 16. And he doesn't get there in his own free will. He gets there as a prisoner for the gospel. So it's probably good he sent this ahead just in case. For I long to see you, he says in verse 11, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, he's not saying I'm gonna give a spiritual gift to everybody in the church. That you there is a plural you, a singular spiritual gift for y'all. He's like, I wanna teach you from God's word. I wanna give you the gift of a knowledge of Jesus Christ. That, that's what he's saying. And there's some aspect of gifts from God that come to all of us as a church family, not just us as individuals. That is that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented. In order, I wanna reap some spiritual, some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and uh, to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then uh, in verse 16, I've got it highlighted in my Bible. You might highlight it or underline 16 and 17. This is kind of the crux of everything Paul's writing to them about, of uh, what to believe and how to behave. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Whoever believes the gospel, it's power for you to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. They'll have life that's eternal and they'll live their lives. They'll behave in such a way that it's, it's all by faith in Christ. So the theme of the book of Romans really is God's righteousness, how to get it, 
and then how to live once you got it. It's what to believe and how to behave. Uh, in that way, Romans is a book of doctrine, what to believe, or you might say orthodoxy, correct belief. I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw out a bunch of just uh, theological words at you today. So some of you, you'll nerd out, and you'll be like, oh, I love it. Others you'll be like, I don't understand that word, but thanks. It's okay, it's what to believe, that's doctrine, that orthodox doctrine. And then also orthopraxy, correct practice, how to live in light of what you believe. And you might jot this down, like on the first page of Romans, up at the top, maybe you got some white space. I do this in my Bible because it helps me, like if I'm scanning through a book, like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the theme of this book. That's the key verse. You might write key verse, you know, 1, 16, 17. But you might also just make a little outline. Here's, here's kind of a really rough, because they overlap, okay? But here's a rough outline of Romans. The first 11 chapters, roughly, are orthodox doctrine. They're, they're correct doctrine, what to believe. And the last four chapters are all about correct practice, how to live in light of it. And that's kind of a rough outline of Romans. And uh, Romans is, is a book of doctrine, but it's a book of how to live as well. See, Paul goes on then in verse 18, and uh, he says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What Paul is kind of implying here, and it gets even more specifically to the point later, is that uh, every one of us, all of us, are sinners. We're, we're unrighteous, left on our own. We failed to meet the mark that God set, which is, as we'll see, perfection. We all fall short. And, and he says this, and, and it's curious, when Paul's writing this, and he's like almost talking about when you first read it, you're thinking like people out there. So it's really easy to start thinking, oh yeah, yeah, right on Paul, preach, you're right. They, you know, they ignore you because they ignore God. Look what he says in verse 19. Um, uh, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them for his inv invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Yeah, right? It's easy to kind of think that maybe. Yeah, they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged... God and his goodness for things that were created. They exchanged good things God made and just ignored God. But you know what Paul's going to get to? In fact, just skip ahead with me. Look at chapter two, verse one. He, he, he turns back away from talking about them to talking about us, from looking out the window to looking in the mirror. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse. You don't. Every one of you who judges. You might think that about somebody else, but, it, but it's us too, because look back again at chapter one. You know, they, they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The, the reality is, to varying degrees, we all do this. That's why in chapter two, Paul comes back and says, hey, this is you too. This is me too. We exchange what's true about God for what's a lie. And we worship and serve the things that God created rather than God himself. I mean, so many things. I jotted a few down, career, right? God created us to work. Do you know that? Like he made us to work. And uh, in fact, in heaven, there's gonna be work to do, I believe. Because in the garden, there was work to do. The difference is that like every day will be a good day of work. And it'll be one where you get to the end of the day and you're like, yeah, got it all done. My inbox is zero, like everything's cared for. This was a great day. But there'll be work to do in heaven because God created it and it's a good thing. But what happens is sometimes we can exchange the truth of God for a lie and we can think that work is ultimate, career is ultimate, and I've got to earn more money and make all these things and, and climb the ladder. And, but then we ignore God. And rather than have God in the middle of all those things, which he rightly should be, we see him as on the outside or just something for the weekend. And we exchange what's true for a lie. We serve money and status, neither of which are bad things. They're just not ultimate things. Or uh, how about sex? It's God's idea. It's a good idea. But we can worship it and serve it instead of God. How about food? We kind of need it. I, I'm, I'm pro food, right? And, and I'm thankful God made good food. There's gonna be food in heaven. Heaven starts with a big meal. It's gonna be awesome. But you know, in the same way, we can worship it and serve it rather than God. And we could spend the rest of the day like making a list of all, every good thing God gives, if we make it an ultimate thing, we exchange the truth of God for the lie that that's ultimate and not God. Do you see? That's Paul's argument here. And, and we all fall into this. We're all sinners. We fall short of God's standard. We, we violate what he said is right and good. We've distorted what's true. We've exchanged it for a lie. And in violating God's command in this way, Paul also ends up telling us that we deserve God's wrath. I deserve it. I deserve it. Because I've chosen to sin. So have you, we all have. We've chosen it. We've chosen to reject God and embrace things that are not him. Romans 1, 21, like we just read, you know, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. We too can become futile in our thinking and foolish in our hearts. Or if you uh, turn forward a little bit to chapter three, really the first three chapters of Romans is Paul setting up this argument that we're all sinners and we all deserve God's wrath and that we've chosen sin. Chapter three, verse 20, for by the works of, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. In other words, justified is to be declared righteous. 
No one will ever be declared righteous by works in God's sight. You ever hear that though? Like, uh, I don't know when I die, I think it's, you know, I think the good kind of outweighed the bad. I'm going to be okay. No one means no one will be justified before God by works of the law. Verse 23, he goes on, he says, for all have sinned, they fall short of the glory of God. You know, this goes for you if you've never trusted Christ, but this is true of us even after we've trusted him, we're still being saved and we still struggle with sin. I mean, that's why if you fast forward a little bit to Romans chapter seven, uh, Paul writes some things like this in uh, verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. He knows he too is a sinner, that he deserves God's wrath. That is in my flesh, in my body, for I have the desire to do what's right. After trusting Christ, he has the desire to do good and to do right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Can you relate to that? Yeah, me too. We all fall short. You know, what Paul's setting up here is kind of this little drawing we've shared with you before of God designed everything and he designed it perfect. But what's happened is every one of us have exchanged the truth of God's good design for things and for us for a lie. And and the Bible calls that sin of missing the mark. And we step outside of that and we look for hope somewhere else instead of in Christ where it really is. And we think that's going to lead to some kind of freedom, but all it leads to is brokenness. And so then in our brokenness, we think, oh, I must not be doing it right. I've got to keep trying. So let's try this road or uh, let's try this road. And we keep searching and, and all it does is it leads us further and further away from God's good design. Because we're all sinners, we all fall short. We all deserve God's wrath. Like, I don't know, Josh, because I've been pretty good. I mean, my life's okay. And you should see my neighbors. You should see the people I live with. Like, I'm doing okay. Here's the problem, though. God's standard, Paul argues here, is perfect. I'm not saying that perfect isn't describing the standard. Perfect is the standard. Perfection. Like, you never mess it up. You never sin in thought or in word, let alone in deed. Like none of us can claim that, can't we? But that's God's standard. I mean, if you don't believe me, maybe you believe Jesus. He said, you know, if you're gonna follow me, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard. All right, you ready to pack it up? It's like, I don't measure up to that. But there's good news. And that's what Paul is setting up in those first three chapters. See, look at chapter three again. See, uh, we're all sinners. We deserve God's wrath. Look at verse 21. And you might, again, grab your pencil, highlight or something and circle it. But now. We are all sinners. We all do deserve God's wrath. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
apart from getting it right through all my works. God's righteousness, God's perfection, in other words, his rightness has been shown apart from me getting it right and earning it on my own. That's a huge, but now the turning point for this whole letter and and really for all of our lives, if we trust Christ. See, but now verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory, but verse 24, and we're all justified, declared righteous, declared perfect by his grace as a gift. See, uh, we're all sinners deserving God's wrath, but the good news is Jesus took it for us. He took the punch of it for you and for me. That's why he died on the cross. But he didn't just die and get buried. He, he rose to new life, showing he, he conquered it. He cared for it. And now the new life that's in him can be ours. That's the hope of the gospel, friends. He, he, he did it for us. And so, while Jesus said, yeah, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let me die in your place, rise to new life. Just trust me because I want to give you perfect as a gift. Perfect's a gift. It's not earned. Religion says be perfect so that, you know, you can make it. Jesus says, I'm perfect. and I'm going to give you perfect because God requires you to be perfect. So let me give it to you. And then you can begin to change and live that out. But if your hope is always in achieving that, you're just on a treadmill that will never end. God's grace says that perfect is a gift. That's why, I mean, it said it right here, right? In chapter three. All are justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift. To be justified is to be declared righteous, to be declared perfect. How many of you, I mean, like you go home today or you go to work this week, you're with people who know you the best and who you know the best. Would you look at any of them and say, I'm perfect? I'm righteous. I got it all together. They'd laugh at you, wouldn't they? Think, no, no, you don't. Who are you trying to fool? Yet in Jesus Christ, if you trust him, you're a sinner, you deserve his wrath. So do I. But God looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you're righteous. You're perfect because you're mine. And he gives you perfect as a gift. That's the gospel. That's the free gift of God. Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What I earn for my sin is God's wrath. It just is, it's it's what I deserve. but God's free gift is life. And theologically, this is, I'll give you a couple more big words. 
propitiation and justification. Propitiation is, uh, I'm not always a smart, so it takes me a while. I got to do some things to remember these. You maybe heard me do this before. Propitiation, I think of as propitiation, that Jesus took the punch of God's wrath for me. He, he took it all. Isaiah tells us that he drank it. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, like to the last drop. You ever get a shake somewhere? And like you get a little bit at the bottom that's like stuck to the bottom of the glass or a slushy or a smoothie or something. You're like, you're trying to get it out. You put it up and you're like tapping it and getting it out. Jesus basically did that with, give me everything that they deserve. I want all of it. I'm going to take it all and drink it to the dregs so that they don't have to. That's propitiation. He propitiated, satisfied God's wrath that you and I deserve, which leads then to our justification that God looks at us and he declares us to be righteous. When I was a kid, I remember this being taught as like, he looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. Now, not that God forgets that I've sinned, but he sees me now in as, as perfect, as righteous because of Christ. Maybe this little drawing will help you. Uh, Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection satisfied God's wrath. It, 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 he atoned for my sin and for your sin, for the world's sin. He propitiated God's wrath. You could write that word there too if you were drawing this out in your notes. And because of that, God then justifies you and me. He declares us to be righteous. He doesn't declare, if you get it all right, then you'll be righteous. No, we've done nothing so far. Only Jesus has. He just declares you righteous. Think, how did God create everything? He spoke and it was there. He has the power to do that with you and I too, to declare us righteous. And uh, Jesus then, uh, his work toward us is he redeems us he paid the penalty for us so that we could be set free. And as you look at this, how many things have we done so far? Nothing. The, the only act, and, and Paul spells all this out in Romans, if you take time to read it this week, the spirit works in our life and uh, in doing so, we believe. We have faith. It's all us. And depending on your perspective of when in time the spirit works, you could say it's, it's even all him. Even our belief is him. It's not about you and me. So while we've rebelled, we've stepped out of God's design, the only thing we can do to get back, Jesus lived a perfect life. He, he died on the cross in my place and in your place. He rose from the grave to prove it worked. The only response is to believe the gospel, not to chase after all these other things. And by the way, this is a response whether you've never believed the gospel or whether you've been walking with Jesus for a lifetime, because the reality is even after we believe it, I don't know, maybe it's only me, but there's times where I wanna jump back into this red circle and pursue things on my own that I think are gonna fill me that don't. And so even after I'm a Christian, my response is to repent and believe. 
that the gospel is our hope. And with that, then it enables me to recover and pursue God's good design. That's really the theme of this entire book Paul writes to the church in Rome. You're more messed up than you ever feared you were. And you're more loved than you ever dreamt you could be. And you receive that by faith. And because of that then, because Jesus took it all, we can have new life and we can choose new life. See, one of the things is Paul keeps going in Romans. And by the way, the book of Romans could be like its own series just as long as Acts. Like we could spend about two years in the book of Romans unpacking it. So I'm giving you the flyby with the hopes that you go back and read it on your own some more. Um, But one of the things Paul argues is that our salvation is threefold. It's past, present, and future. You've been saved if you've trusted Christ. You're being saved if you trusted Christ. And you will be saved if you trust Christ. Past, present, future. Past. Romans 5, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners in the past, Christ died for us. He died for you and for me. Since therefore we've now been justified, declared righteous by his blood, that was in the past, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God in the future? We'll be saved even in there. Or uh, how about the fact that we're being saved? You're like, okay, God may declare me perfect, but I know I'm not yet. Yeah, because you're being saved. And I'm being saved, right? There's therefore now, present, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And not only is it a present reality, it's also a future one. You will and I will be saved. It's our hope, it's our confidence. Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not, future, be put to shame. Like, I don't know, there's days I just doubt Josh. That's okay, keep trusting, keep following. You will not be put to shame if you trusted him and you persevere with him. There's no distinction, Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Past, present, future. And so it's something you can have, that new life. But it's also something, friends, you can choose. And if you really have it, you will choose it. You'll choose a new life. And you know, those first... um, Those first three chapters of Romans are kind of how we deserve God's wrath and we're sinners. The next couple chapters are about how Jesus uh, took it all for us in our place. Then the last few chapters of Romans, kind of starting, really it's throughout Romans, but it really kind of begins in chapter 12 is, okay, so now this is who you are. Live like it. Live it out. That's the real proof. Leave the old, live the new. Leave the old and live the new. That's who you are. And, uh, I mean, we see it throughout Romans too, though, right? Like in Romans 6, we're going to see baptisms next week, which is just a visible symbol of that. Uh, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
He died in our place, in other words, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, like, like today, like walk with him, leave the old, choose the new. Romans 6, 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Choose new life. Yes, God does all the work of saving you, but then the evidence of that is like the fruit, right? Like that you choose, you just, you want to follow him. And, and how many of you know, if you've, you've followed him and then you choose not to, like how miserable life gets in a hurry? Because it's not who you are anymore. Leave the old, live the new. Now, uh, look at Romans uh, chapter 12. Uh, he says, um, in uh, Chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, verse two, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. Then he goes on in uh, chapter 13 and verse 12. And uh, he, he says this, he says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put off the old, live the new. Leave the old, live the new. That's not who we are anymore, if you believe these things. Verse 14, verse eight, if we live, then we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So, so then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's, we're his. So, so, the implication is live like it. Live like it. Leave the old, live the new. I'll give you one more. Uh, they're, they're all throughout here. Verse 15, or chapter 15. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. I remind you what you believe, who you are, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, if you live it out unless I preached it to you in vain. Like the evidence is I'm, I'm leaving the old, I'm living the new. That's the evidence. And it, it kind of brings us back, that's full circle of Paul's argument. We've, we've left God's good design, we've all sinned and we find ourselves in brokenness and we keep trying to find our way back. But the only way back is not through our action, but through Jesus' action. We repent, we turn, we believe upon him and that's how we recover, that's how we're restored. And it's all by faith and it's all a gift. So uh, my encouragement to you this week, <clears throat> take the book of Romans, grab your notes, some of the things maybe you learned today or just what you've written down and read through it and look for those moments where this is what I need to believe. This is who I am. Look for those moments where you read, oh, this is how I'm supposed to behave because of who I am. And, and just ask God to speak to you through his word. I challenge you to read this letter this week. And uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna sing, we're gonna call it a morning. Um, so would you pray with me? Let's pray.